was my Welcome to the Antifada Report. Where did my vape go? Only the hot burning questions. Where the fuck is my vape? Is it in your jacket? It's probably in my jacket, yeah. All right. Sean's getting his vape. Welcome to Antifada, episode one of 2023. Uh, Today, we're going to be taking some of your questions. These are questions that are... Friends on the Discord submitted to us. Thanks, friends. And if you want to join our Discord community, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash the Antifada. And you can also hear the second half of this episode, which is behind the paywall, which means it is the spicier part of the episode. Yeah, this is episode 202, which by my reckoning means that over the course of several years... With some cast changes and whatnot, there's probably about 150 episodes of premium content on there. And I think a lot of it holds up really fucking well. Yeah, we do four free episodes a month and then like two to four bonuses. But you, yeah. you guys all probably know that. Uh, just to say, we always appreciate people supporting the show. That's why we do what we do. And uh, patreon.com slash the Antifada. And I still have some postcards left. The, the supply is diminishing. Mm. But if you're a patron, just message me your mailing address, and I will send one out to you this month. Like the massive surplus value, it is diminishing by <laughs> the day. Get it while it's hot. Get a job while it's hot. Go out there. Find some stable employment while you still can. Do not get a job. No, don't I, get a job. That's not my This opinion. is one of the fundamental disagreements on this podcast. I say go get a job. Andy says never work. So before we get into the questions, how was your New Year's Eve? What did you do? I have to say it's incredible without, um, I don't know, vacation doxing myself. I'll say that we went out for the third time to a very lovely part uh, out east on the North Fork of Long Island, a place where family members of mine in the past have gone out to and retired to. And so I spent a decent amount of time in my childhood out in that region. And we've discovered some really nice places to just like relax and chill. Because if I'm going to do New Year's Eve, if I'm going to do anything, it's not going to be going to Times Square. It's not going to be whatever the fuck it is that you did here in Brooklyn. I'm going out, getting a quiet place down by the water. I'm going to relax and take some primo LSD and just fucking ride it out, man. You know, get to the end of it. It was a beautiful time. I felt like it was the perfect reset. You know, the holidays, it's just one thing after another. I traveled for uh, Christmas and uh, just jumped into work right after that and was feeling really ragged, raw, and I went out there and just kind of reset for a few days. So I feel pretty good, man. I envy you in a way, and I hope in some way you envy me that I'm still partying incredibly hard on every I, holiday that I have the opportunity to. <laughs> I both I both envy that and also find it absolutely terrifying because I'm a 42 year old man, and that sounds well. I find more acid more... terrifying too, but oh, I, it's incredibly terrifying. I do read and write a lot about the 60s, so at some point I'm going to have to understand what that thing is. Uh, Yeah, I mean, acid is, like, inherently terrifying. I always get a sense of, like, impending doom whenever I take it and when it's coming up. But, uh, you know, as long as you keep your head on straight, as long as there's spooky 
fog as there was the other night rolling oh in. i love the fog on on yeah on, on, on new year's eve beautiful, it's beautiful. like yeah. old docks and marinas just walking around like completely quiet except for the foghorn yeah of, of, of like uh boats passing by it was uh yeah i mean you gotta you gotta like embrace the wacky looney tunes character of acid and you mm-hmm. gotta just fucking plow your way through it you know I'm I'm a bit of an old head. I've been doing it for twenty something years at this yeah. point. I've only done it once with you, and it was a half a tab, and it, it was it was wonderful. But uh, you know, I got to do the full thing one day. If you want to become a powerful communist, <laughs> you have to take acid. If Folks, I want to understand the post bordigast tendency and all of its nuances, if you want to understand how little you understand, you mm. got to just take a tab. Just listening to Operation Ivy is not enough. You yeah, that's to, right. Yeah, you got to destroy the ego. Is that what you do? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I'd say you destroy the ego. You get a little wacky with it. But I, for longer than, because Kay does that, but just for like 20 minutes. Yeah, this is for like eight hours okay, or so. Okay. Like the end of it is, is pretty rough. You know, the come down at the very end is pretty rough. But during the course of like the electrical fireworks situation going off in your brain, you'll, you'll think about communism. Don't mm, think for one right. second you won't think about communism or even political economy. You're going to be thinking about it. But... Why did the CIA invent it then? CIA invented it uh, as a mistake. They went, oops. Mm. Well, so they, they didn't actually invent it, but they did, you know, see what it was. And once they saw what it was, they distributed it. They did. And they used it very effectively to, like, destroy some pretty famous radical figures, including I buy the conspiracy theory that they got Robeson with it. Have you heard that one? No. Oh, I mean... You know, Robeson was like this powerful international communist. I mean, I know who he is. I'm a fan, but I I never looked at how he died. Oh, if you look in the 1960s, he all of a sudden has this like critical break, has like a mental breakdown and ends up in asylums for the last two or three years of his life. And, you know, they argued for years that it was stress or whatever. But there's some indication that he had like... Um, been encountered by various like assets of uh, intelligence agencies and perhaps had been dosed in an extreme way that mm. kind of made him lose his mind and put him out of commission in a time when he has like a communist of a former generation and a black communist and one that was like very much in support of internationalism uh, in the 1960s. He could have done something, but instead he was left in like a, basically a mental institution. So, yeah. Um, damn. Well, yeah, well, so that's like the idea that they were dosing people to an extreme extent where they break your brain, but that doesn't really explain to me, like, you know, at one point, Timothy Leary is just, you know, walking down the street of every, you know, yeah. hip neighborhood in the country with, like, a cardboard box full of sheets, like a printer page full of sheets of acid, yeah. just handing it out to everybody. And there's also, like, um, I mean, there's a lot of, like, weird stories about how psychedelics like hit in like starting in like 1959 to 1970. Mm. Um, And like one of them is just like uh, psychedelic mushrooms were promoted in time magazine all Mm. of a sudden, or maybe people like one of those, there's Mm. like a story about one of those little villages in Mexico where, you know, beatniks were going to do mushrooms. And the indication seems to be that, you know, the government was involved in promoting that story in some way for some reason. Yeah. Uh, but you do think that there's like a liberatory way of using these drugs. Oh, I think for sure. I mean, I, I think that, you know, government conspiracies aside, it's uh, it's, expen- it's incredibly like mind 
expanding, let's just say, in a way mm-hmm. that sounds corny and cliched because it was done to death. And it became like the, the, the raison d'etre for like the late 1960s and early 1970s. But before that, you know, before it became like a slogan, basically, of like what ends up becoming a pretty counter-revolutionary sort of cultural movement, I think it was actually a pretty powerful thing. And I think it could be used like that again. I wouldn't like advocate it for anybody. I didn't use it when I was in high school because I had like mental health problems uh-huh. <laughs> and I knew it would drive me fucking nuts. But, right. you know, I, I, it's, a, it's a tool like anything else. I'm just worried it's going to turn everyone into Joe Rogan. They just get too blissed out on it and they're just, they just love their friends so much and the people around them that they just believe whatever they say and are like, uh, yeah. you know, content with just their friendships yeah which might be the reason why you know if the if intelligence did spread it that might have been the reason why i think well because well, they wanted to they wanted to promote more like cultural peace and love sorts of things instead of they didn't want people to identify with like the international proletariat they wanted right. to identify with uh your fellow man with uh you know all men are brothers and that's what marx was fighting against <laughs> they didn't want you associating with folks like the black panthers or the young lords they wanted you associating with jerry rubin and and ilk of that sort right or even ginsburg right who's like a great and interesting poet. well more like the like the in san francisco you've got like the free festival scene that was like more tolerated and promoted because that was more of just like a cultural avenue right compared to yeah like panthers or you know, more of the anarchist armed struggle groups. Yeah, I mean, there was. A, it's an interesting question if, like, the 1960s could have gone a different way, if the new left could have been more, like, proletarian-oriented, or if it was just, like, that moment in, in world history and capitalist development of, like, seeming um, lack of scarcity and great abundance and, like, a whole bunch of middle-class kids dropping out or whatever, that it was over-determined that it would take a cultural turn. Uh-huh. I mean, I'm not sure. That's an interesting question. Well, culture had to turn at some point. It wasn't because of drugs or CIA meddling, but just like the way the culture turned did have some influence by the way the powers that be wanted to. Pro- My take on these things tends to be it's it's capital that really pushes things more than the state ever could. Yeah, I agree. With and, that. you know, middle class kids dropping out was just going to happen because middle class life is deeply miserable and impoverished yeah. and people want something better for themselves. Yeah. Um, oh, but yeah. Yeah. we're going to talk more about this sometime this year because we're going to have Aaron J. Leonard on to oh. talk about his new book, uh, Whole World and, and Uproar, I think it's called, which he he wrote the folk singer on the Bureau, which we've talked about yeah, before on yeah, the show. Yeah. Yeah. He you know gets the, the FBI documents on all of these political figures and musicians and cultural figures and um, so he, he'll be a great person to revisit this subject on. I would say as a final thing, uh, Rax and I did a great episode on the Baz Luhrmann uh, movie Elvis. Have you seen it yet? Yes. And also, you need to see Babylon if you liked Elvis. Really? Yeah. Okay. I, I've hear, I heard a lot of buzz about Babylon, but I heard it's a three and a half hour It's movie. just like Elvis. I mean, it's like the critics hate it. Yeah. And there's some huge problems with it. Yeah. But if you see it in the theater you will have a wonderful time. Wow, okay. You will not be bored, at least. I, I'll go see it then. I mean, the, the the takeaway from Elvis, and people can check out the movie that I had by the end of it, just kind of like freestyling on it, is like it's very interesting the way in which, as you said, like capital was driven 
you know, through individuals, but also, you know, the commodity form or whatever, driven to like create a new sort of cultural expression and new kind of cultural commodity, which we feel as though looking past on like the rock and roll revolution and then the 60s revolution and the sexual revolution, that it's really like seems overdetermined, like it was just going to happen anyways. It's like, no, there were basically like hucksters and salespeople who created these entire personas of the of Elvis and the rock star that sort of like just made a ton of fucking money. And it didn't have to necessarily be that way. You could have seen the dull Dre grab drab 1950s potentially like continue. But where do they make the money from, from a new uh, species of people? Teenagers, the teenager, yeah, they which was invent the teenager. The teenager was invented category, in yeah. 1950, and who were the teenagers? It wasn't just an age; it was suburban youth. Right. The suburbs were a new thing. Uh, suburban youth were existing in a way that no human had ever existed before, which was: you now have a car, you yeah. now have a job, you can get away from your parents, you yeah. don't have to help your parents with whatever they're doing. Right, you can have your own independent life. But you live in the fucking suburbs, so right. you're bored as hell. Yeah. <laughs> and you want some kind of some independence. You you're bucking authority in some way. And so rock and roll was uh, you know, it needed to be adapted as as a form of black music could be adapted along with jazz, along with other forms of black culture, to allow white pe- white teenagers some kind of identity yeah. in this situation of you know no like this pleasantville and, and, black and white world and some basket of consumptive good consumption goods right that can you can obviously make a lot of money off yep. of and can create something that looks like a cohesive identity yeah maybe when i'm i'm done with the armed love series we can like go backwards and do the 50s hell yeah that's yeah because you start to realize that all of that counterculture was it was bubbling in the 50s with the beatniks and rock and roll and all that stuff there was even all these rock and roll riots in the 50s which is so interesting interesting yeah let's do that let's do that when when we're ready so Uh, yeah that's gonna be our resolution to you more talk (laughs) about uh, a century uh, half a century ago the cultures of the 50s and 60s yeah that's right I mean, and the drugs and the drugs. We're going to get into the Q and A today for sure. Um, I feel like I could probably talk about the fifties and sixties for a bit, but we'll wait for that moment. Yeah, let's Q&A get into the Q and A. This is good to do after the new year. You know, maybe like I've reset my brain with powerful psychedelic substances. You've reset yourself with just mysterious research chemical, probably from China or India. I've reset myself by being in the warm embrace of my family. And you've reset yourself by being in the warm embrace of actually, like, depraved psychopaths that live (laughs) in this neighborhood. So we're embracing, yeah. We're ready to move on. We're ready to, like, take what we've learned, take our reset, the great reset, we can call it, and move into (laughs) 2023. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Appropriately enough, our first question is from Fonz, Fonz, Fonz. Fonz. You thought the Fonz was cool. Oh, yeah. What about Fonz, Fonz, Fonz? That's three times. That's triple cool, man. Uh, They ask, the obvious 2023 question for me is, is the incoming recession the terminal crisis of capitalism? Ooh, we could all wish. We could all wish, but we could also be really afraid if it is. I mean... Is it the terminal crisis? What do you think, Andy? I mean, you say Fonz, Fonz, Fonz says incoming recession. What's happening economically right now is way weirder than a recession. It's like a, it's a great reset. It's like a restructuring. It's kind of a turning over. It's a series of different indicators that are pointing towards recession, but you still have more than full employment right now, at least in the United States. 
Do you feel as though the terminal crisis, the Grossman crisis, is in the works? Uh, I mean, my my I guess standard answer to this would be like, even if we have, if we even if we see some major like international meltdown, that's not the terminal crisis of capitalism. Because even if we like go beyond like this world order, capitalism still could exist on some like small localized level, and that could be better, but. I, probably it'll be the same or worse. So I think um, no recession or crisis of capitalism can be the terminal crisis unless it's the proletariat destroying yeah. capitalism, yeah. which means not just like the conditions get so bad, they just have to live a different way, but they understand what capitalism was and understand how to change their lifestyle to do it. So th- there has to be the subjective element. Yeah, But I do think... You know, the you know the bigger they are, the harder they fall. If we're looking at a major international recession, depression, collapse of supply chains, and you know, uh, and could happen. Yeah, I mean, that could be the impetus for some sort of proletarian restructuring of everyday life. Yeah, I mean, there's like you know, you mentioned the subjective factor, and I agree with you a hundred percent. You know, and Grossman agreed with that as too, uh, too, right? In the 1930s, it wasn't just going to be a collapse, and just all of a sudden we magically get communism. I think, um, you know, if you listen to our Ted Reese episode, Ted Reese, who has done a lot of study on this stuff, uh, people like Jason Smith, who have done a lot of study on this sort of stuff, people like me and Varn, who have done a lot of study on this stuff, um, will tell you that it looks like the indications are that we're about to get into, you know, the the sort of next shoe dropping, um, this kind of ongoing crisis we've been in for almost 15 years at this point in time, since 2008, the amount of debt right now, the debt overhang, uh, public, private, corporate debt is so absolutely astounding. It's, you know, over a hundred trillion dollars. The question is, I guess, like, what does capitalism, what does the world, what's the economy, what does politics, what do our lives look like if all of a sudden, uh, very quickly, the butcher's bill, uh, is due for all of those things. Um, I think that at this point in time, we're all sort of waiting. We're waiting for the, the next shoe to drop. The Federal Reserve is um, trying its best to slowly bring us into an employment recession, trying to get a bunch of us unemployed to take the pressure off uh, the inflationary tendencies that exist. You're starting to see a little bit of disinflation now, uh, the inflation rate going from like 7.3% to 7.1%. I'm really, really, it's really uncertain to me whether this particular moment can last this this sort of um, wildy coyote running off the edge of the cliff and not looking down moment you've had equities and bonds have had their worst um, year uh, way worse even than 2008 worse than uh, 1931 in 2022 but what it hasn't done yet what the economy what capital hasn't done yet is, through its crisis tendency, lead to a to mass unemployment on the one hand and mass bankruptcy on the other. So we're left again in this weird situation, which is why I think it's fair to call it a restructuring as opposed to a recession right now, because as long as employment is happening and we don't trust economics on this show, what we trust is the actual you know, empirical measure of how many people are working, which is to say how much surplus is being created, um, not numerically, per se, not trying to like tease out the actual amount of surplus value, 
but just trying to understand where these tendencies are going in the economy. As long as employment is there and as long as these zombie corporations exist, as long as bankruptcies, um, you know, and um, debt defaults are only in small marginal peripheral nations like Sri Lanka and Pakistan, then we haven't yet reached like a classic crisis, let alone a terminal crisis. So it's something we got to keep our eyes on. And what Andy points to the subjective factors of a terminal crisis is the thing is the reason why I think as communists, we look towards these things because uh, people's minds, uh, people's politics can change very rapidly in those movements in those moments, as we've seen many times in the past. So we have to prepare ourselves for it one way or the other. If it doesn't come next week, if it doesn't come next month, it's going it has to come at some point in time, because as I said, there's just trillions upon tens of trillions, a hundred trillions dollars of worth of uh, fictitious capital that's floating around right now that needs to claim surplus value production in the future. And with the massive surplus uh, in decline with this sort of decomposition with the decadence of the global capitalist economy, it looks like that's going to be impossible. So we just keep waiting. Keep waiting, and we're going to talk later on in this episode about what sort of things communists right, should be right. doing and can be doing. And I think part of that is preparing ourselves for this inevitable moment when we're going to have to start doing something under very different conditions. Yeah, I mean, things are going to change in our lifetimes uh, dramatically, and we don't know when or how exactly. We can only speculate, but we need to start thinking about what we can do now. So that, that yeah. more questions, we'll get to that. Let's yeah, go on sure. to the next one. Uh, this is from Cassie, one of our uh, our favorite Discord users, uh, who says, how do you read books personally? Would be good for mimesis. My mesis. Does that mean like would be good to imitate how we read books? Yeah, I okay. believe so. That's a good question from Cassie. Definitely. Uh, do you want to start first? Yeah, um, I wasn't... You know, so th- these last few years since the pandemic started, I've become a much better reader. I read about three books a month, sometimes a little more, a little less. Uh, and I was able to do that through, um, I've got a app called Habits, which is, it's an Android app. I don't know if there's an iPhone equivalent, but it's a basic thing. It's just like a checklist. You can do it with a notebook. And one of my habits that I have to do every day is read 20 pages, uh, which is not hard. You could read 20 pages in 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. You know, you could have a book that's easy to read. So you you make sure you can get that thing done. But the important thing is that reading is part of your daily routine. And I think if you're like me, you'll find that when you start reading uh, 20 pages, you're going to want to read more. Um, Unless it's a book that sucks, in which case maybe you shouldn't be reading it. If I start reading a book... Uh, even if it's something I you know feel like I should read, and I don't like it, I'm probably just not going to read it. I don't go to school, so you know I don't need to read right. anything. If there's a guest on the show, I'll I'll like do my best to like understand what the book is. But if I'm not enjoying it, I'm just not going to read it. Yeah, I you know I I went through a spurt like a period of time uh, about 2008, I'd say to 2012, where I really read a lot and really I think consolidated a worldview that I I still largely have to this day, or at least a series of principles, a a series of understandings about the world. And during that period in time, which I think was up till now my most fertile period of reading and understanding and analyzing and stuff, I did it largely through 
formal inf- and informal reading groups. Um, some of that was, again, like reading Capital, reading the Grundrisse together with other people, um, reading history books together with other people, whether in seminars or whether outside of it, or simply just like going with some friends who are interested in, in similar things to like a quiet place, like a library, and just going together and sitting there and reading. I always found that to be really powerful. Me personally, for my for my purposes, whether it's marginal notes or whether it's like a yellow legal pad or whether it's now some a trick that Andy taught me, which is have like a little tiny like uh, bound notebook and a pen with you at all times. I find for myself that taking notes um, is really, really super helpful for me. Just the process of like writing out my thoughts on something imprints it into my brain. So if that's something that works for you, I would highly recommend it. It's also good, you know, even when you're not reading or if you're just reading like the news or something on your phone to have a notebook or something, because I find that I get these sort of sparks of inf- uh, of inspiration that come when I read something or, or understanding that come. And if I don't write them down immediately, they just sort of fade away and I'll maybe remember like 10% of it or whatever. But now I, I try to be really good about writing down everything, everything that I read in a book. And even if I don't go back to those notes, I find it helps to me to sort of like absorb through osmosis what I'm reading. Um, quiet, you know, find a nice quiet place without distractions is always good. Even if it's like the train or something like that, that's relatively quiet or audio books can be good too. Just, you know, try to get yourself in the habit of, as Andy said, sitting down and taking reading seriously. And uh, yeah, you should be pretty good. Uh, so we got two more questions along those lines. Um, next is from Tool Using Mammal, our good friend Dave. Great friend of the show. Our, What's up? Dave? Our skinhead punk friend. Our brickie from uh, from Quebec. Oi to you, Dave. Yeah. Um, any cool music book releases you guys are looking forward to? As for topics, I would be interested in hearing about conspiracy theories, thinking on the left. Mm. Um, so we already covered that second part, and we will be doing more of that for sure. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, for music, uh, the one thing I know about is Flower, which is one of my favorite anarcho-punk bands in New York. Just put out their record. I'll put the put that in the show notes. I think it's like just flower.bandcamp.com. Great bands. They've just put out their LP. Um, as for books, these are all books. Like, Hopefully, we're going to have uh, an episode about these, but uh, they're all coming out pretty soon. Um, Palo Alto by Malcolm Harris, which is like this massive history of basically modern capitalism just starting in Palo Alto, Mm. like from Palo Alto's settlement in the 19th century to its development with Stanford to Silicon Valley. He's doing like a city of courts, but for Silicon Valley. Yeah. It's basically like you understand the way capitalism works just through Palo Alto. And I've read, uh, it's like a, thousand page book or something cool. and i've i've yeah. read about 250 pages of it and it's buy a new mo- notebook before you read that <laughs> it, it's fantastic and i think it comes out in february hopefully oh, yeah. we'll have them on i would love that that'd be great um, Whole world in uproar i just mentioned that uh, uh, mute mute compulsions by uh soren mao who i think we're gonna have on if not this month and the next month it's sort of like in the value form theory school it's coming out from verso books and it's all about the sort of like behind the scenes shit that makes us all so dominated and exploited. Cool. Uh, then we've got uh, Ian's Fanonius' Against the Witten Word. <laughs> we tried to which get him on for on. fucking years, man. He always dodged us. You tried him before? Yeah, we tried him like when we first started the podcast. Oh, really? Ago. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm talking to his uh, 
PR person right now, yeah. so hopefully he'll be coming on. He wouldn't come on for Psychic Soviet. He's a pretty he's coming on for this one. He's, he's a, a pretty cool guy. So very cool guy. He might cool guy us. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm reading his new book. It's pretty funny. And then uh, the George Floyd Uprising book from PM Press from the Vortex Group, of course. Mm, hell yeah. Um, more talk about the. It's just a, a collection of essays. Uh, written during the uprising from people on the front lines. So, and I think this year, uh, Michael Heinrich's Science of Value translation into English comes out, which is oh. apparently like a mind-bending, incredibly good analysis of value theory from friend of the show. We can call him Michael Heinrich. Yeah, we'll have to have him back on. And I that think was one of our most popular episodes. It was a great one. Um, and then I think also Michael Heinrich's second volume of his biography of Marx, um, Marx and the Birth oh, of the Modern World, might be coming out That's this huge. year as well. So look for that one, man. We'll have to have him on again, obviously. Is it going to be a trilogy? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. We should ask Al, our translator friend Al, the greatest troll, this <laughs> that side of, uh, I don't know, the Biscay Bay. I think he's trolled me into submission. I, I Yeah, I think me as well. Shout out to Al. You really have some spicy ones. <laughs> uh, what about music? You got any music recommendations? I don't. You know, I was watching uh, Dick Clark's Rockin' New Year's Eve. I mean, that's the age that I've reached now where I'm like, oh, Dick Clark's Rockin' New Year's Eve. I remember this. Let's check it out. Ryan Seacrest, what a nice young man he is. <laughs> And I was looking, and there was, like, K-pop going on. There were all these, like, artists that I'd never heard of before, and I felt like I had dropped in from an alien planet. Like, anything, any music after the year, like, 2000 might as well just be gibberish to me. But you do know there's a new Lana Del Rey coming out. Yeah, I don't even really listen. I don't know who Lana Del Rey is. Okay, I, yeah, you, that is old. Yeah, I'm, I'm ancient, man. This is what fucking political economy will do to your brain. It'll turn you into a fucking loser. You'll think Michael Heinrich is really cool, but you'll know (laughs) nothing about Lana Del Rey. So this one will be the next one more up your alley from Samwise. I always want more history, both on the pod and for reading Rex. Quick question for more uh, would be for more histories that rely heavily on political economy I read Wages of Destruction by Twos last year and could definitely do with Rex for similar books. Started reading the Hobbsbaum trilogy oh, yeah. today, and I already, uh, I'll already burn through them. So yeah, that one's more gonna, for you, then I've got a couple recommendations. You're going to kill it. You're going to kill those books, man. And, of course, it's a trilogy, but there's the one he wrote about the 20th century. I think it's called The Short 20th Century. I think he... Know, a riff off of uh, the whole Rigi thing. But yeah, the Hobbsbound is excellent. I think I've recommended it on the show before. Um, you know, it's a really great overview of a sort of historical materialist take of, um, you know, the entire history of capitalism. Samwise is very smart for reading that. Other great books that uh, we've recommended in the past and I would still recommend would be Robert Brenner's The Age of Global Turbul- Turbulence or The Boom and the Bubble, depending on which version it is. Really foundational for us at this show um, for kind of understanding the political economy of the last 50 years or so, done in a very good historical fashion that I think allows you to understand a lot about what's going on right now. We're going to talk about Brenner, I think, later on in this episode, too. Yeah, maybe we'll take that one next. Yeah, he had a new Left Review uh, article that came out that was apparently pretty spicy. But uh, Jefferson Cowie's Staying Alive, we've repped uh, a whole bunch of times here. Uh, Reed Trotsky. On the Russian Revolution, you know, amazing fucking books. Um, 
What else? Um, ba, 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 ba. There's like uh, Mike Davis is always good. Mm-hmm. Planet of Slums, uh, City of Courts, really, really excellent stuff. Uh, Ecology of Fear is another great one that he wrote. Um, Ellen Mason's Wood, I can never pronounce her middle name, but she wrote a great book called The Origins of Capitalism, A Longer View, which is in the sort of Brennerite school, the political Marxism school, uh, which is like really gets down to first principles and makes um, the sort of transition to capitalism so much easier to understand. Um, And besides that, there's like really great micro histories from non-Marxists. Like there's this book by Shane Hamilton called uh, The Trucking Revolution, um, which is all about like the deregulation of trucking and the end of the domination of the Teamsters and what that does to American politics. Pearlstein as the for bourgeois economist or sorry, historian is really good. If you want to understand the late 20th century, Rick Pearlstein. Um, what else? Uh, Nelson Lichtenstein is a good non-Marxist uh, labor historian who wrote a book called the retail revolution uh, about the rise of Walmart. And I had mentioned that recently. I'm not sure if it was online or on the show when I was talking about the way that, Retail capital, which is a commercial capital, has kind of been in the driver's seat for the last several decades and able to push prices down onto producers in Mexico and China and the United States and elsewhere. So those are some, you know, off the top of my head that I think you would really, really enjoy. And um, yeah, like the Hobbsbound is really foundational. And as always with any history book, um, you want to go into the end notes and the bibliography at the end of it and sort of pick out whatever interesting topics you found and Find yourself down a rabbit hole of really great history books because there's a lot out there. Yeah, I'll just add a couple of recommendations to that. Uh, Captives by Jared Shanahan about the history of Rikers. Um, but it goes deeply into not only the history of like prison reform leading to Rikers, but also what was happening in New York City that made the, you know, the financial shift from the post-war economy to the you know, more neoliberal fire sector economy how the necessities of prison as an organ of social reproduction changed and how Rikers fit into that. And Jared does an incredible job making that connection in a way that's really entertaining mm. because uh, he you know, depicts the, the, the scenes of Rikers of, of riots and brutality and escapes and all this stuff in a way that's as thrilling as like Among the Thugs, mm. uh, a great book about like football hooligans in the mm. UK, um, but still making the the materialist uh history like very forefront so that's probably the the best book i've read recently along those lines um i'd be remiss if i didn't mention uh many headed hydra by peter oh, yeah, linebow yeah. and marcus redeker in fact anything by linebow or redeker yeah, is a really, so really great history really good stuff they play with a lot of like uh like the transatlantic sort of republican slash proletarian sort of movements uh, in the 17th, 18th, 19th century. Really, really good and powerful stuff. Really and make good sure writers, too. Great, it's fun to read. Great writers. They pull some really, really great and poetic sources out from history of, like, great proletarians or great Republicans who were uh, fighting the good fight. You know, I was thinking, I don't know if this is something I could do, but it would be so great to have a documentary about Peter Leinbaugh because he's such an yeah. interesting guy. Yeah. Um, so one last recommendation. You mentioned... Adam Tooze, and I just saw on Twitter today that Adam Tooze announced, I don't know if it's a book, but it's a new project. He says, NFT airdrop alert. Get yours now. Um, and then he, it's a quote <laughs> tweet from uh, an account called Moonbirds, and it says, don't miss out on the final airdrop. Get up to three free <laughs> NFTs per wallet. 
hurry up, claim yours now. And there's um, a little picture of a cat with a astronaut <laughs> helmet on. Andy, of course, is talking about something that our friend Pavlos Rufos uh, was joking about, which is that Elon's uh, apparent firing of the entire Twitter security force led uh, Adam Tooze to get fucking hacked on Twitter.com. Yep. Incredible. I mean, it might have been Adam Tooze's fault. You know, oh, we don't sure. know. <laughs> yeah, it might have been. He doesn't seem like the least tech savvy guy, though. I don't yeah. Know. He's got a big account, you know, Russian hackers, Putin's hackers that got in there. and Maybe we'll get twos on the show in 2023. No, he just gets more and more popular. No, we tried. I tried. You I can tried. try again. I tried. He he followed me and I DM'd him. I was like, Mr. or Professor Twos. Oh, yeah. I'm, I have a... That's his, how I ask. I, I don't have know a if history and politics podcast <laughs> and would be very interested in your take on political economy. And he's like, sure, sounds great. And then he's like, what's the name of it? I was like, Antifada. And I never heard back from him ever again. Well, when we saw him, our friend Amog asked a question that was like a little bit over my head. It yeah. was like kind of, it was kind of out there. And Adam Tews was like, that's brilliant. And you're correct. <laughs> and then like gave this long answer about how Amog was, understands capitalism better than everybody. So maybe uh, we can get Amog to, yeah, maybe to Amog ask him. can get Adam Tews onto the show and uh, yeah, we can get... Some of that that poly crisis shit on here. A polycule 2022 polycules are <laughs> out. 2023 poly crises are in. All right. Um, do you want to do the Brenner question next? And then we'll get into like the, the more fun stuff. Oh, sure. Yeah. Not that Brenner isn't fun. Oh, it's fun to me. This is what I find fun. <laughs> um, um, well, why, why don't we just describe who Brenner is very fast? Because. Oh, sure. Yeah. Knows. No, I mean, Robert Brenner is. Uh, He's elderly now, but he famously in the 1970s uh, came up with something called the Brenner Thesis, which was um, basically a sort of reconstruction of the theory of the transition from feudalism to capitalism uh, using, you know, the basic categories of uh, Marxist historical materialism. Made a big, huge splash. We've talked about this. Varn and I have talked about this on the podcast before. Matt Chrisman, so you can find episodes where we talk about it. But it made a huge splash to the point that there are books about what was called the Brenner Debate, which is about whether his conception of an, an agrarian move, uh, agrarian capitalist move from feudalism to capitalism is the right one or not. Uh, and he still writes. And he actually has an um, article in the New Left Review that came out a couple weeks ago. So that's what the question's about. It's from KBoz BJ, uh, who says, thoughts on Brenner slash TFRP. That is the, the following grade of profit. I'm going to start calling it TFRP <laughs> from now on in. Yeah, TFRP. And uh, questions about that or the recent dust up. Dust up. Uh, and this is purportedly incorrect NLR piece from last year. The dust is flying. From last year, I think that's the December 21st article that our friend uh, is talking about there. I, I looked um, for evidence of dust up and I found it. I like did Robert. I did a search on Twitter. Robert Brenner. You went to Encyclopedia Dramatica. Yeah. <laughs> well, his section is long, man. They have <laughs> strong opinions on that. The Brenner debate on 4chan. Um, no, but um, I, I actually, uh, on your recommendation, I read the article. I couldn't find out what was so controversial directly from the people who found it to be controversial. But the article itself was basically trying to understand um, what's been going on politically over the last four or five years in the United States uh, through the rubric of understanding this particular regime of accumulation that is developing right now as something called political capitalism, right? Because Brenner 
at a certain point, he he rose. Some eyebrows were raised when he he didn't agree with like the techno neo feudalism thesis. Um, you know, a, a year or two ago, when this was being really big, that we've moved out of capitalism into some sort of neo feudalism or whatever. But he did say that a lot of the hallmarks of capitalist production and capitalist society um, have sort of fallen by the wayside, and you're starting to see more sort of like. Uh, debt relationships, more sort of uh, politically driven accumulation. So what he calls political capitalism is uh, in this article is a new regime of accumulation based on basically various actors, politicians and capitalists capturing state power uh, to reward themselves or others, but specifically within a no growth economy. Because what Brenner has done subsequent to the 1970s is he wrote that book, The Boom and the Bubble and others, where he basically argues that because of overproduction, because of overaccumulation of capital in manufacturing, uh, moving from you know complementary production to competitive production in the world, uh, that you've basically seen a crisis of profits in manufacturing for the last 50 years or so. So the question that he asked in this article is, what does politics look like and what does the economy look like if instead of in the boom periods of, say, the golden age of capitalism, where you've got profits to spread around, you have the movements towards something that looks social democratic from the Biden administration, uh, but without the actual underlying growth necessary to create a lasting class compromise. So basically what he argues is that this political capitalism, exemplified by both Trump uh, and Biden, <clears throat> represent not just fractions of capital, but uh, fractions of the working class, who in this zero-sum climate are basically trying to not do class struggle. He says that the Republicans as a working class party or the Democrats as a working class party is total horseshit, right? But instead what workers are doing in this sort of coalitional format of the Democratic and Republican Party in the United States is trying to either uh, increase the value of their individual and group labor power uh, based on nativism and racism on the one hand, obviously the Republican side, or through sort of neoliberal, multicultural, meritocratic capitalism, on the other hand. And this largely, you know, is the, uh, the coping mechanism of workers politically under a regime of no growth. It's like you're, if you're a Republican uh, working class voter within, you know, under this sort of coalition of capital that exists there, you're trying to claw back the value of your own labor power against, you know, immigrant workers or black workers or whatever. If you're a Democrat, you're like a more highly educated uh, worker who's trying to claw back um, basically like declining wages using things like credentialism and meritocracy or whatever. So this article, it's a very, very interesting article in terms of what the dust-up was about. I think that he gives some hard home truths about um, how – uh, how possible it is to use either of these political parties as an avenue for class struggle, because he said that they're fundamentally not class struggle, even though there's a material basis, you know, for the politics that exist here. They're not, they never, and in fact, both parties are against the use of uh, working class votes or working class power in order to d directly confront capital, which has become, as he says, like practically impossible right now because there's not the profit sufficient to even claw back from capital in a period of low growth, in a period of like consolidation, in a period of like generalized capitalist crisis all over the world.
So you seem pretty sympathetic to this, but w- you know what? What is it about these hard truths that has caused the dust up? Well, I think that he puts a lot of blame on. Uh, I can only surmise. I can only guess. I can only like read this article and then think to myself, like, what would somebody that you know isn't a Brennerite or somebody that's attached to say like a mass organization that's vaguely affiliated or on the outside fringes of the Democratic Party trying to like run people on Democratic Party ticket or whatever, mm-hmm. like what would they think about it? So without knowing like you know the specifics of it, without having found this dust up online or whatever, I can only surmise. That it's it's because it's like a uh, it's a condemnation of the attempts to like push the Democrats in a class struggle direction when the Democrats and the Republicans are both like inimical to the entire enterprise and in yeah, fact the entire history of all of of these parties even going back to the New Deal has been to try to take whatever working class energies were moving towards some sort of autonomous. Uh, militant class movement on its own terms and bring them into like an individual uh, petty property owning um, sort of labor power owning group dynamic uh, anti-class struggle uh, sort of politics that makes sure that the working class can't step out of those particular bounds. So I would have to imagine that if you were again trying to kind of claw at the edges or nibble on the edges of the democratic party electorate, that this particular article would be pretty sad for you, what he says. Okay, so let's say you don't agree with that, uh, and you're gonna like you're gonna say, "Well, I'm gonna prove you wrong, Brenner. Yeah. You think you're so smart? Yeah. Uh, I'm gonna push Biden to the left." And that's uh, <laughs> another question from Dave. Um, Ever the troll, Dave. Boots and braces, Dave. Uh, he says, "How do we push Biden to the left?" How do we push Biden? First of all, it's been over a year don't now. Don't push Biden anywhere. You're from Canada. <laughs> Biden's our president. You should be thinking about pushing Trudeau to the exactly. left, man. So you you worry about Trudeau and will worry about Biden. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have any ideas about pushing Biden to the left? I think um, one could argue wrongly and stupidly that he has already been pushed to the left. I'm with Brenner on this, who says that uh, pushing Biden to the left, was, uh, or as people imagine they have done, was really just simply like Biden uh, and Trump before him, both like stumbling towards some sort of progressiveist or redistributionist reaction to like uh, a general crisis of commodity production and profits, which was the COVID crisis, that it's forced capital um, and forced the state, forced people like Biden in order to do things, the redistributive means and subsidies of capital using the private sector, using the public sector to subsidize the private sector and uh, direct cash payments, uh, not because of the mechanism of class struggle over the last several years, but because, you know, the, the economy was flat on its feet. It was, but what it appears to look like is that the dark Brandon meme has caused uh, Biden to like be pushed to the left. Well, okay, so... With this new budget, and we're just starting to see what's in it, but one thing that's in it is, like, for example, a cancellation of the, uh, like, the uh, the health emergency provision that was passed during COVID, where um, it, it's no longer legal for states to kick people off uh, Medicaid. So now, starting April 1st, states mm. are required to review Medicaid, uh, you know, uh, uh, sign-ups and start kicking people off and mm. one 
statistic I read was it's possible 20 million people wow. could lose their Medicaid. Wow. Um, so I think those sorts of things, like like this thing that we're, you know, 20 million people had Medicaid or as, as a result of the pandemic, yeah. that's going to come to an end. Obviously, direct cash payments mm. is over, the, you know, the unemployment. Some people are now being charged for the unemployment if Oof. they did it wrong. So, like, yeah. this stuff is all over. But Dark Brandon came after that. Uh, so, you know, how do you push Biden to the left? Well, obviously, we know that the Dark Brandon meme. The Dark Brandon meme, yeah. Uh, which began with, uh, I think the first time someone joked about it, it was when police started rounding up uh, Patriot Front members <laughs> yeah. in, like, Idaho when they were, like, coming to, you know, try to to, to storm, like, a drag queen story hour mm. or pride parade type of thing. Yeah, they had them on their knees, and some, up, yeah. Someone joked that like Dark Brandon's beating the roundup of the Nazis. Yeah. Obviously, Brandon had nothing to do with it. Yeah. Uh, but um, the meme did make its way to the White House. It we did. talked about this uh, a couple times. A um, very but, popular episode we had there. Actually. Yeah, yeah. People, the, <laughs> the, the, the masses love the Dark masses Brandon. Love Dark just, Brandon. Yeah. To hire the even if you're not a Bonapartist Brandon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I I was thinking like obviously. If if that's the farthest left we can push him, or that's the farthest left we have pushed him with this meme, um, we have to keep memeing. We have to keep have making to keep Brandon memeing. into a, a Bonapartist, uh, proletarian dictator type figure. ABM, always be memeing. And um, the way Dark Brandon worked was it played on, on the deepest fears of the Republicans. Yeah. The same way like the Trump God Emperor, Emperor memes played on mm-hmm. like triggering the libs. Mm-hmm. Um. So I think one thing we could do is uh, is, is start uh, memeing the Great Reset replacement theory mm. and say, Brandon is going to do this. Brandon, Brandon is going to make year zero, just like oh, Pol Pot. Yeah. You want to see a Great Reset. We are going, uh, uh, Brandon and his, uh, his Red Guard yeah. is going to empty the cities. <laughs> How's that for a reset? He's going to make... A 15-minute city. Have you heard this This right wing, this new right freak out right. about the 15-minute city? Joe Biden is going to change A the Constitution. City. No clocks. <laughs> He's going to abolish time, first off. He's going to change the Constitution by fiat through executive He's order. Say, you want me to draw a clock? <laughs> uh, how about all clocks are banned? <laughs> no one will uh, remember what a clock looks like in 10 years. He's going to tear up the part of the Constitution that says that foreigners cannot be president or vice president <laughs> in order to have his running mate Klaus Schwab. <laughs> Take the mantle in, yeah. what is it, 2024 or 2026? When's the next generation? Yeah, 2024, it's going to be Biden-Schwab. Uh-huh. It's going to be the fucking World Economic Forum. Globalist infiltrators are going to get all the way into the White House. Treasury Secretary George Soros. Uh, who else are these, these guys really scared of? Oh, you know, just all the communists, the the yeah, World yeah, Economic yeah. Fund, Bill Gates. Bill and, Gates yeah. is going to be the new Fauci. Right there, we go. All those um, Bolsheviks coming out of the woodwork. Yeah, Van Jones is going to run <laughs> communications. The famous communist Van Jones. Uh, well, you know, I I was also remembering um, this great thing that happened during the uprising, where Trump was like, "Oh, all, all the cities where the uprising is taking place are anarchist jurisdictions now." <laughs> Cool. And he officially declared New York City an anarchist jurisdiction, which hey. is probably the coolest thing that's ever happened. Yeah, in my no, life. no, we'll take it. Yeah, so Biden should, you know, again push that. Like, okay, now the cities are anarchist jurisdictions; yeah. they're autonomous zones. 
They are run by Antifa and the mutual aid groups. And uh, good news, if you're a conservative living in the cities and you don't want to be, you know, subsumed into this world government Antifa bureaucracy, um, you're going to have to get on this bus and go to the countryside that you like so much and do all the work. Uh, of the immigrants who you yeah. want to expel from the country. Yeah, re-education through labor. That's right. I like that, man. I like this new Brandonism. So Brand, Pol Pot Brandon. Yeah, Pol Pot Brandon. Uh, that's how we push them to the left. That's we how just we have push to get to Pol Pot Brandon, yeah. Year Zero Brandon, trending. Charles Schwab, WEF. And Brandon. obviously he's not going to do any of those things, yeah. but he is going to do some speech where he weirdly uh, <laughs> plays on the aesthetic of the meme. And, no, that, what's and that'll gonna, be funny. What's going to happen is, you know, he's going to weirdly say at the end of the next state of the union address, you will own nothing and you will be happy. And it's going to just trigger a civil war in this country. And then all of a sudden now, you know, the, the sides will be down and we can stand off to the side as like Democrats and Republicans fight each other. And then um, he's going to give it, he's going to give a profit. speech just in front of a wall of skulls. Yes. But then the speech itself will just be about how like Donald Trump is <laughs> uh, a liar or, or the, something. The time in Delaware where his father told him that uh, Mexican people are just as you know hardworking as the rest of us or. You know, corn pop or whatever the fuck he talks but, about. But, you know... He, they had him on um, on uh, Dick Clark's Rockin' New Year's Eve, which is the only kind of cultural touchstone I have right now. And it was sad He was to dancing to K-pop? No, he was sitting there with Jill in the White House with a tree behind him, and he told some completely incoherent story. And I yeah. said to myself, I feel almost bad for this fucking ghoul. You almost feel bad for him. There's one more thing I'd like to see him do, and uh, he, he does this thing where people ask him about Trump... And he and he he acts like he's about to insult him in some way, and then he just goes, "Oh, ne- never mind." And <laughs> yeah. he always like he he knows he's doing it. He like puts off what he wants to say about Trump. And the only time I've ever actually seen him say it was during the second or third debate, mm. where he's like, "No, oh, never mind. No, actually, this time I'm gonna say it." And then it was something just like, "You didn't pay your taxes or something." <laughs> it was like something very innocuous, something real hard. But he hitting. should be doing that, where yeah. like when the investigations towards Trump like reached whatever like banal conclusion, yeah. he should just be like, "You know what I think should happen to him?" Oh, never mind. I shouldn't say. No, I'm going to say it. We should hang him. <laughs> he should be fucking hung for sedition. And then you know he won't be, but it'll be like. You know, it'll be based. You know, you know, Trump does the same thing. He's right. Should I say it? Should I say the word? Right. Everybody wants me to say it. Should I say it? What What's the word? Like nationalism or something? Yeah. yeah. He's like, there, there's a word. It starts with an N and <laughs> everybody's scared of it. And the crowd's like a bunch of white fucking pasty <laughs> they, motherfuckers yeah, just cheering in the they, background like, say it, say it. And then it. he says nationalism. Nationalism. Like, oh, 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 yeah. Right. yeah. Nationalism. Cool. Yeah, we're yeah. nationalists. That's the yeah, word. That's like. the word we wanted. Yeah, yeah so they're they, not nationalists. What does uh, it mean to be no one? There's no such thing as an American nation. It's bullshit. Yeah, there's. I think it's fair to say that there's an American civilization. I think right, we've, we've but, gotten to the point. But of like civilization. everybody's in the world is part of that civilization. Unfortunately, yeah, yeah, that's kind of true. I think there is a question about like what it takes to organize um, that maybe touches on like American Americanism, like what it would uh, look like to have communism in America. I mean, that's a question that's coming up. You want to do that one now? Yeah, let's do that one. Sure. Uh, yeah, it's from our friend Delia Core. Delia Core, also friends on Twitter. What's up, Delia? Delia Core is in in twenty twenty three. That's right. Norm Core is out. What does an American road to communism look like? 
what kind of organization should we be trying to make and what should it be trying to do? Well, that is like the, that's a huge question. I think it's a really good question, right? Because you've identified, I think, something that has tripped me up in the past, probably trips up a lot of people, which is that we get so into theory, we get so much into sort of levels of abstraction where things like the differences between America and Europe or America and China or American and South America and South America um, sort of, you know, get papered over. And we talk about these sort of first principles of proletarian organization and autonomy and class struggle or whatever. But there are, of course, very, very specific, specific characteristics of uh, not just, you know, the economy as like the center of the global capitalist empire, but also of politics and um, culture and society and history or whatever to the United States. And I've been thinking very deeply about this uh, since, you know, the sort of abortive project that we tried to do, um, because I think that it's like a super important question. I think that without you, you don't want to go out there and start talking about socialism with American characteristics as though you were like a MAGA communist or a dungus, unless you do, which is actually very, very interesting. If you want to take the Browderite sort of uh, route, uh, famously like at their convention, the communist party USA in, in 1932 or 1934, there was a big banner that said uh, communism is Americanism and had a picture of Lincoln on it. That's like a weird route to me to take. But I do think we need to, as you know, people in America, take seriously that there are going to be particular particularities to the road to communism here, things that like the sort of social democratic route that people imagine happening in Europe is just not happening in the United States. It's just simply not happening. It didn't happen in the 1930s, didn't happen in the 1970s, and it's not happening uh, today. Uh, in America, it feels like elections are a dead end for all the reasons that we've been talking about with the Brenner piece. Uh, it seems like, too, that redistribution in like a European or Scandinavian mold um, is also a dead end uh, in the United States. The idea of like building upon like a welfare state and then maybe breaking through it. Uh, as was tried many, many places with the Euro communists in the 1970s. That seems like a dead end. So uh, what we have to do, I think, is theorize, you know, a process of um, bringing together um, or create recreating an organic connection between the American working class uh, with all, warts and all, right? The working class that spans from those Republicans uh, who are using nativism, those workers, uh, to the Democratic ones who are, you know, using credentials in order to try to, like, get up on the labor market against, like, the, the shitty chuds or whatever, to, like, the vast majority of working class people, white, black, Latino, and otherwise who don't even vote at all. These are the people who will be those who produce American communism. It won't be um, intellectuals on podcasts, and it won't be academics uh, in universities. And, you know, we have to, we, we can't, um, naturalize um, the sort of like the caste system that we have here in the United States or just wipe away the years and years of slavery and Jim Crow. Uh, we need to face that stuff directly. Um, at the same time, we need to be um, crafting the sort of movement necessary to unite vastly different sectors of the class under a sort of minimum program that matches with the sort of tendencies we've seen in this country. Uh, the Neo-Kautskyites call for like a return to proletarian republicanism to try to take the banner of democracy and raise it high again. 
I'm not sure that that's particularly what I have in mind here, but perhaps we can imagine the American road to communism um, having like perhaps concessions towards like the fact that there's so much space in this country uh, from the settler colonial escapade that, and, and it's such a large continent that like petty property would make sense in so many more, so many parts of this country, or at least like usage, usufract of like single family homes or whatever is not something you would want to like abolish immediately. That that's sort of like a de facto thing that exists in this country. We want to look at the fact that American labor unionism the bad and the good uh, is basically class collaborationist right-wing syndicalism. You know, it has a syndicalist element to it that tries not to actually uh, rely on the state, but is instead like a private sort of enterprise. We should look at how that can be transformed yet again into a sort of industrial unionism that might have the same sort of characteristics of syndicalism in the beginning. What I imagine the road looking like right now, and this is something that, part of my great reset is about and trying to like reformulate what we can all do together and what sort of organization uh, we should be building looks maybe something like prepper revolutionary syndicalism. Whoa. Prepper syndicalism. <laughs> prepper syndicalism. Yeah. Like communist prepper syndicalism. Cause I think that, uh, you know, all indications are that the working class in this country is going to have to be prepared, not just to self abolish itself, uh, but first self-organize itself and also be prepared to like take up the reins of what's necessary in order to like keep humanity alive through great social and ecological crises coming forward. So it's going to take something like, I don't know, a sort of contradictory movement towards like pursuing, um, you know, pursuing the, um, the revaluation or like the self-organization of the working class with an eye towards abolishing itself, but also being able to take up the machinery and be able to take up the roots and the, and the movements of goods and the, and the pr production of the sort of services that keep all of us alive in a revolutionary format so that those could be constructed through a process of constructing communism, which is a tall order, but it's something that you have to do, I think, in the imperial center. It's sort of contingent upon us uh, to take that road. That was a, a big answer to a, to that question. I don't know. Did that? Did any of that make any sense? Yeah, I mean, um, it was a very interesting answer. I do worry, though, that it didn't really get to what the question was, which was like, yeah. what do we do with this uh, ephemeral sense of patriotism that yeah. it's like so much, you know, more, uh, I don't know, like amorphous in the United States than it is in like Italy or, or you mm. know, a European country or something like what America means is pretty different to everybody. And like the most patriotic people are perhaps the people who hate America the most. Uh, uh, what it's become, you mean? Well, yeah, I don't know what they think America is, but they despise it. You know, yeah. they, the QAnon people are hyper patriotic, but they want this like military dictatorship to like right. crush and break up, like kill half the country and break things <laughs> yeah, up. And yeah. like the neo Confederates are, you know, they don't believe in America at all, but like the they have a huge amount of influence within the right. The liberals don't believe in America either. I mean, they're happy to like through globalization, let like large swaths of the working class of this country just like go to the dogs. 
years, like with the Rust Belt and whatever over the last 50 but are years. You, are years. you like proposing a, a sort of patriotism that's directed not towards the, the nationalist conception of the United States, but towards the American working class? As uh, uh, I, don't, I don't think like patriotic socialism is the root, but I feel like, and I mentioned this maybe um, you know, on, the, on the Varn episode, and maybe also with the episode that we did with uh, Rev Left Radio, about how you can't really like deny that there is something called like Americanism and it's not just wholly reactionary. I think right. that you, that we should be here in America, we should be focusing on the ways in which um, working class people understand what freedom is and, and try to move and propose a freedom that will, won't be like the complete abolition of America, but it will instead be as transcendence. It's sublation. You know, so all of like, so when the Pat Sox like uphold the, uh, the bourgeois revolution, you know, uh, are, are, um, breaking away from the, from the British monarchy. I mean, there, that's a classic Marxist position. Uh, when they talk about, uh, the revolution or the, the, the completed bourgeois revolution under Lincoln. And I think that that is correct as well. These are the sort of things like the heroic struggle, of millions upon millions of Americans to not maybe explicitly in their own minds, but at least historically to destroy the slave power in the South. Right. I mean, these are the sort of things we can nod to without being like cloying and patriotic in a way that's like, but it's, it's in keeping with the tradition of this country that like, these are the sort of events. These are the sort of ways that people understand their history and their politics and the sort of like, the way that our political system works and the way that like quote unquote civil society has been so powerful uh, in this country and left its imprint on so much, especially in the trade unions in the United States, it like a sort of top down sort of like vanguard sect thing doesn't seem to make sense for an American working class that understands freedom and liberty uh, instead as some sort of participation understands it as like a sort of small D democracy understands it as a sort of like more horizontal enterprise, which may be, you know, that this is the United States could happen differently elsewhere. But I think about in 2006, I went up with my family to Vermont and I had a sort of revelation. Do you know who, um, you know, what bread and puppets is? Yeah. So like the bread and puppets are old, like sixties hippies and socialists and progressives. It goes back to the fifties, back to the fifties. Yeah. Thanks. I mean, you probably know more about this or maybe longer, but yeah, I went to like their, the, where their commune up there and they had like a whole show against the Iraq war and against George Bush. And they had all these like goofy puppets or whatever. And you know, they were talking socialism and whatever. And I'm looking and I'm thinking to myself being from New York city. I'm like, this is fucking cringe as hell. Uh -huh. You know, this looks stupid. You know, these people, you know, it's all like fucking swirly psychedelic fucking bullshit. But then I thought to myself, like, this is what a movement towards a better world looks like in fucking Vermont. And that doesn't have to look the same way as it looks in New York City or the way it looks in fucking Alabama or it looks in Humboldt County or Idaho or whatever. And we need to like understand that in a vast country and in a vast world, there's going to be regional differences. And, you know, we need to take seriously the idea that the production of communism isn't uh, an intellectual pursuit, but it's about actually building class power. And in order to do that, you need to deal with the realities on the ground and not take them as natural uh, but understand that they're real and then try to move people in a direction that increases class power and ultimately, you know. Yeah, I, I would say along those lines, um, there's like two cringe answers to this. One is like 
we have to become as patriotic as possible. And the other is we have to become as anti-American as possible. Yeah. So one is like the Caleb Maupin CPI thing where like you were going to like try to tail the Republicans on yeah. their patriotism, yeah. which everyone knows is just this performative counterculture that you yeah. know doesn't actually have anything to do with what most people love about America. Uh, and then the other way is we need to burn a flag and yeah. call sound, you know, sound like Iranian propaganda and call America the great Satan and stuff yeah. like that. If you feel those ways, like if you really are a jingoist or hate America and want to burn a flag, you should do it. Like oh, ex- sure. express yeah. yourself. But if you're, you're trying to be strategic um, about like how to appeal to a lot of people, you can also be honest and just say like, well, those people love America or those people hate America. In what ways do I agree with them? Mm-hmm. You know, like I love, for example, the national parks and <laughs> yeah. like the yeah. beautiful scenery yeah, yeah, yeah. or the I great love diversity of populations and uh-huh. cultures throughout this like lovely country of ours. Or, you know, what I really think you're dead on about is talking about uh, the Civil War. I mean, there is a lot to be proud of in aspects of the correct side of that war and that's that's what our next question is about but that's going to be on the other side of the pain wall question is about john brown Mm. and we have more questions we have a question from our friend uh sign and c Derek varn about more about like practical things communists should be doing today we've got a question about state capitalism we have a question about elon musk Ah. uh, eco-socialism animal testing so a lot more in the second half of the episode Uh, please stick around if you're not on the Patreon, patreon.com slash the Antifada. You can sign up for all of 2023 at a discount. And we really appreciate that if you yeah. do that. And thanks to, thanks to everybody who supports us. And just so you know, if you're thinking maybe January might be the month that you want to subscribe to the Antifada for the first or maybe another time, I will tell you that Matt Chrisman is around and he and mm. I will be doing our long awaited historical analysis of the American labor movement. You guys have been working on it for a while, so you didn't want to drop it early. Didn't want to drop it early, and on acid I came up with my thesis. So there we (laughs) go. Let's fucking go, dude. Let's go. Sign up now and check it out later this month. Woo!